Acts chapter 14 now. Our text this morning is found in verses 1 through 7. And that will also be our reading today. So I'm going to ask if you would, and if you can, to please uh, stand so we might read God's Word together. Acts chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. That is our text as well as our reading today. And as we do every Sunday, let's read together. And let's read aloud. Acts 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit at this very moment. That you would anoint us and bless us with your Spirit. That we, Lord God, will have your wisdom and your understanding. And that we would grow in grace and knowledge today. We thank you for your precious word. May we ever stand upon your word as truth and not only believe in its truth but live out its truth in our lives each and every day give us the strength through your spirit that we might do so in the name of Jesus Christ we pray amen amen y'all may be seated by the way I just want to tell you it's so good to see you it's so good to see you there's a pattern today A pattern today that is found in some segments of the church that was established by people who are so interested in the spectacular, interested in the fantastic, and who insist that if Christians are to be effective in their evangelism, the one thing they must do in a targeted community is miracles. They must bring about signs and wonders. And then when they've gotten the attention of the people in that community and an open door, they can preach the gospel. Now while that may seem effective, it wasn't the pattern of the apostles and the early church evangelists. They didn't go into the cities and into towns to do miracles and then to preach. Instead, it was the other way around. They went in to preach. And sometimes, many times, signs and wonders would follow. They go into another city and town to preach, and sometimes, many times, oftentimes, there were healings. But these miracles prove that the apostles were God's true messengers. That was the whole purpose of, of those miracles. 
to authenticate the mission and the apostleship of those who were sent out to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. It was how the Lord authenticated His servants when there was yet to be a New Testament and the complete Word of God. As Paul would eventually write in the second letter to the Corinthian church, chapter 12, verse 12, he said, Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. The signs of an apostle, the marks of an apostle, were those signs, those wonders, those mighty deeds. But if there was a constant pattern that can be observed in our study of the book of Acts, it can indeed be seen in this passage as well as the previous account of Paul and Barnabas in Antioch, Pisidia. The pattern was this. The apostles preached, the results being division, persecution, and growth. Now see, this is a pattern that isn't often stressed but it is the pattern of the Scripture. It is the pattern of the book of Acts. They preached, the, they preached the gospel. There was division. There was persecution. And there was growth. You see, when the Word of God is preached, it always produces a division. It happened in Jesus and Paul's ministries. And it happens when the gospel is preached today. You go back all the way to chapter 2 of Acts and, and chapter 4 of Acts when Peter was preaching in the temple to all the Jews. And even though many thousands came to know Christ those days, there was yet a group of people that were struggling with what was going on. It had caused a division. In the, in the Gospels, Jesus himself said that he did not come but that he caused division. That his very coming would cause that division. So you see, consider that when the light of God's word shines in a dark area, it does what light always does. Think about it in these terms. When the light of God's word shines in a dark area, it does what light always does. For some, that light warms the heart. It brings forth the fruit of spiritual life. And then it gives light and understanding to God's Word. In other words, the light bulb turns on. There was a time when we couldn't see anything clearly in the Scriptures because we didn't know God. We weren't spiritual. But when the Lord changed our lives, changed our hearts, changed our minds, all of a sudden things became clear. Why? Because now the light brought understanding to the very light of God's Word. So that's what light does. But what else does it do? Because on the other hand, what else does light do? But it causes creatures of the dark to scatter. Think about it. Walk into your kitchen after a hot summer night, turn the light on, and you've got visitors. But then they, you know, as soon as the light comes on, they scatter. They go look for a place to hide, you see. But you know what? Jesus taught about that too. In John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus said, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. And so, the light comes on. How many people scatter when you start talking about Jesus? How many scatter when you open up your Bible? 
And even if they might not run physically in their minds, they're dry, they're gone. They're, I don't want this stuff. The light has shined. They're looking for a corner to hide. And then follows the opposition and rejection of the message resulting in the persecution of God's messengers. And yet in spite of the division and subsequent persecution, the apostles always left a growing church behind. So you see the pattern. There was the preaching of the word of God. There was division which led to persecution. And yet there were those who got it. They got the message. They received the message and they grew. So the pattern, preaching, division, persecution, and growth, common throughout the book of Acts. And even after some violent encounters, the churches would continue to prosper. And the only reason for that, in spite of the doubt that many have that that would arise of any little work surviving with constant persecution, because there are a lot of people who would doubt that, you know, if you only have a small group someplace and they're going on, you know, and they're involved in some great persecution, they're either going to be all, all get killed or, or, or they're, they're all just going to give up and, and, and go back to maybe their old ways or whatever. So think about what I'm saying here, that even after some of these encounters, uh, that the churches would continue to prosper. And the only reason for that is that the work was and is actually being done by God himself. The work is actually being done by God. And you have to understand that the church was and is His church. It's His church. No matter how small it is. No no matter how big it is. It is His church. He's doing the work through the power of the Holy Spirit. Something that I, I continue to mention every time that we teach the book of Acts, in every page of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit is, is constantly and directly involved in everything that's going on. It's God's church. It's God's power. It's God's keeping. It's God's protection. It's God, all of it, doing it through His servants. So there's no doubt then that even if there's a small group of people that the apostles have left with the Word of God, God's going to take care of them. And they're going to grow. But part of their growth is coming because of the obedience of Paul and Barnabas. And I'll get into that in just a moment. But so with all that in mind, then we arrive then at the beginning of the conclusion. I love to say that the beginning of the end. But this is the beginning of the conclusion of Paul and Barnabas first missionary journey. It seemed like it was a quick thing. What would it cover for us? Three weeks? For them, it was more than, uh, than weeks, it was months. Months of traveling from Antioch and Syria down to, um, down to the island of Cyprus, going from Salamis down to Paphos, from Paphos to Perga, from Perga up to, up to the Antioch in Pisidia. Uh, this takes a long time. I mean, they didn't have transportation like we have today. So you realize all of this first journey is taking place. But now they're kind of in the last wing of this, of this journey. Uh, that they're taking. And so in verse 1, let's go back to verse 1. It says, Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews. Sound familiar? It was Paul's pattern. It was Paul's strategy. Uh, They went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Now, the fact that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews should stir our hearts to understand the agreement that Paul and Barnabas had with each other in facing similar trials as in Antioch before. And what I mean by that is that in essence, knowing what would be awaiting them as they arrived at the synagogue, they were in complete agreement together. 
See, in some minds, as you go out into, into mission work, or as you go out into serving the Lord, and you, and you begin to take a path going from place to place, you, you're, you're wanting to follow the Lord. You get to a certain place, you go into a synagogue, you preach the Word of God, then people believe, but many others don't. And those others are, are now beginning to question, and they start to uh, become uh, somewhat uh, uh, violent in their, in their attempts to get you out. You would think that the conversation between Paul and Barnabas after they left Antioch on their way over to Iconium as they're traveling. Barnabas would ask Paul, Paul, where are we going? Well, I'll probably go to Lystra and Derby. What are we going to do there? Well, I'll go into the synagogue. Yeah, but Paul, didn't we do that right now and look at what happened? Look at the, look at the things we had to face. I don't know that that was the conversation. But what I'm saying is that sometimes that's our conversation. Sometimes we look at the, the oppression or we look at the persecution. And we say, you know, if that's what's going to happen, I don't know that that's what I want to do. What we have to understand is that we ought to expect it because we have the gospel of Jesus Christ and the world doesn't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their initial reactions may be just like they were in that day and time. So their particular view then was one of being together and what was going on. That's why I'm bringing this up. That it should stir our hearts to understanding this agreement that Paul and Barnabas had with each other in facing trials. We're going to face trials. And it brings to mind the question, are servants of God immune to danger? Are servants of God immune to danger and hardship and persecution and death? Are we immune to those things? You know, there are the words of Jesus to always bring us comfort and to always bring us encouragement to those who day in and day out serve Him in every mission field. And by the way, each and every one of us who is a believer in Jesus Christ, each and every one of us has a mission field. Wherever we are, wherever we work, wherever we go, wherever we go to school, whatever it is, where we are, that is a mission field. You may be the only person who truly knows and loves Jesus Christ where you are. So you have this comfort from Jesus himself when he said in John 16.33 to his disciples before he went to the cross. He said, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. Realize that I'm going to be with you. I will not leave you. I will not forsake you. I'll be with you, Jesus said. I'll be with you to the end of the age. So we don't go alone, even if we're alone. We're not alone. But Paul and Barnabas were together. They were in communion with one another. They were in fellowship in the things of Christ. So they were awaiting these things, you see. They knew what they'd be awaiting, no matter where they went. So together, Paul and Barnabas shared in the strength and they shared in the hope of Christ's presence and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And because of this, they reflected the beauty of brotherly unity in the proclamation of the gospel. And that comes out so clearly and so beautifully in Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3, where David writes, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. Now Luke doesn't record their sermon 
as they enter into this particular synagogue in Iconium. But he simply indicates that they spoke in their usual manner, that is, just as they did in Pisidian Antioch. They were given the opportunity to speak on a passage of Scripture that had been read in the Law and the Prophets, or passages of Scripture read, but their focus would be on pointing those Scriptures to Jesus Christ. And what happened? A great multitude of Jews and Greeks believed, we're told. And by the way, the, the, the word truly is Greeks there. Not just Gentiles in general, but Greeks. Because the city of Iconium was more Greek than it was Roman. And, and the word for Greeks here in the, in the original language is actually the word from which we get the word Hellenist. So we know then that they were real Greeks. So there were Jews and there were Greeks, Greeks who believed. Not geeks, but Greeks. I'm sorry. My tongue got caught there for a second. Which is a reminder that Iconium was, was, was just that, you know, a, a different kind of region than, than, than the Roman places and the Roman, the, the, the Roman uh, cities that were predominantly Roman. But the success was refreshing as they come to Iconium, since they had just been kicked out of Antioch after having much success there. And of course, successful ministry will always create opposition. So this is another lesson that we're learning, that success... And successful ministry will always create opposition. So if you look at verses 2 and 3 now of our text, it says, But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. So these were Jews that were in the synagogue, but they would not believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they were stirring up the Gentiles who were there wanting to know about the God of Israel, but they were poisoning their minds against them. And against, against the, uh, the brethren being Paul and Barnabas. Therefore, they stayed there a long time. Now, isn't that an interesting picture? I tell you, this is a tremendous picture. Therefore, they stayed there a long time. Now, wait a minute. They're facing opposition. They're facing persecution. Some people would say, I'm not staying here very long. <laughs> they stayed there a long time, it says. Speaking boldly in the Lord who was bearing witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You see, it was the same story all over again. It was the same story all over again. There was, you know, there is no bitterness, folks. Listen carefully. There is no bitterness like religious bitterness. There is no hatred as intolerant as religious hatred. The pattern was, was now set. And it followed the missionary activities of Paul wherever he went. The pattern I mentioned. He preached the gospel. There was division. And then persecution would come. But out of that, growth would take place. It didn't keep Paul and his companions from leaving too soon. And it begs the question... Why did Paul and Barnabas decide decide to stay a long time if there was opposition arising? Well, it's important again to consider that they were not only called to preach the gospel. And I think that this is is something that, that ties in very clearly to some contemporary thinking about the way some people preach the gospel or, or have evangelistic uh, types of, of meetings or, or, or have uh, some kind of crusade mentality. 
uh, and, and not, again, not crusades aren't all, all bad, okay? I'm not saying that. But what I want, want you to get the picture of his, that they were not only called to preach the gospel, they were also called to encourage the churches along the way to continue in God's grace. You see, that takes time. It doesn't take a lot of time to come preach the gospel, see a bunch of people raise their hands, give them a Bible, and then say, see you later. That doesn't take a long, a long time at all. What takes time is when you discover that there are people who are truly receiving the, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you don't want to leave them without giving them what they need to continue in the grace of God. That takes time. And in Acts 13, verse 43, this is in the last chapter, we studied this last time. When the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. So you see, that that takes time. So it wasn't like they just told them, here, you're saved now, and you're on your own. (laughs) They stayed and persuaded them. That persuading takes time. Persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Later on in this chapter, Acts 14, we won't get there today, but in verse 22, as they're making their way through the places where uh, churches have already been established, notice, strengthening the souls of the disciples, exhorting them to continue in the faith and saying, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. You see, they understood this. They understood that this was going to happen as you presented the gospel of Jesus Christ, that through many tribulations we enter the kingdom of God. The opposition of the Jews and their attempts to stir up prejudice against the missionaries in the minds and souls of the Gentiles was countered for a long time as well by the display of signs and wonders that bore witness to the word of God's grace. The only word, by the way, by which Jews and Gentiles can be saved on an equal basis, the word of God's grace. This is the whole gospel, folks. This is the whole gospel. And even though they only had, at that time, they only had the Old Testament scriptures. Paul preached the whole gospel to them. This is what he would have preached. The provisions of God's grace in salvation, in healing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and our future inheritance. All of that in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everything that will be ours when Jesus comes again. If you remember, well, you know, I know that we're taking our time through the book of Acts, but many of us have already read the book of Acts. And you know that in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is, is giving his farewells to the elders of, of Ephesus and Miletus, and there he is, is, is telling them that, uh, you know, night and day in tears, he never shunned to give them the whole counsel of God. That's the whole counsel of God. That takes time. That takes his, 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 his whole heart being expended for them. For them to have the equipping of all that God needs, or God wants them to have, what they need, what God wants them to have, what God wants us to have. It takes time for us to go through the Scriptures. It takes time for us to, to find ourselves planted in God's Word. This is what they preached. You'll notice that their boldness in speaking in the Lord continued in the midst of intimidation and threats. That was, that was what got them through. Speaking boldly in the Lord. 
The fact that they stayed a long time there gives indication that they weren't intimidated by the threats and the opposition. They knew that these new Christians needed all the grounding they could get to stand strong in a city with much opposition. But let me ask you a question. What was, what was Paul's deep concern? What was his deep concern? Now some of you who know this, this particular scripture know what I'm talking about. What was Paul's deep concern? I want you to turn to 2 Corinthians again, to chapter 11. 2 Corinthians 11. Paul is going to give us a list here of things that have happened to him at this particular point in time in his ministry. Beginning of verse 23, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three, He says, Are they ministers of Christ? I, I speak as a fool, I am more. In labors more abundant. Notice the list now. In labors more abundant. In stripes above measure, being of course the beatings that he received. In prisons more frequently. In deaths often. And, and, and really he's speaking about the fact that he was that close to death many times after those particular beatings. Verse 24. From the Jews five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Do the math. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often. In perils of waters. In perils of robbers. In perils of my own countrymen. In perils of the Gentiles. In perils in the city. In perils in the wilderness. In perils in the sea. In perils among false brethren. In weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. And you think, how did he live? But notice this next statement. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Do you know that that is the most important thing to his heart there, the deep concern for all the churches. He gives us this amazing list of things that he has suffered, but he says, my burden is the churches, the body of Christ, God's people, God's children. And so long as the Holy Spirit was working in and through Paul, so long as the Holy Spirit was witnessing through his disciples, through his apostles in Iconium, there they would stay. As long as the Holy Spirit was doing the work. And as long as Paul continued to have that heart for those people, he would stay. But now comes... The result of that work. What's the result? Look at verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided. What did we say? They preached the gospel. The pattern was division. And then persecution. Notice the, the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews. Part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews. Persecution. With their rulers to abuse and stone them. To treat them shamefully, that's what the word abuse means. To treat them shamefully and stone them 
They became aware of it and they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. Now, we could consider that the opposition arose, providing further opportunity for preaching the gospel. We could consider that. But on the other hand, and a wiser consideration is that the opposition was the evidence that God was working in the hearts of the people, leading to further preaching. That's why they stayed. And as Paul would comment on in, on in his letter to the Corinthian church, I want you to listen to these words. It's just, just the thought and the idea that Paul had. In 1 Corinthians 16, verses 8 and 9, as he's closing out that letter to the Corinthian church, he says, I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Do you notice what he knows already that's going to happen? He says, I'm going to have an open door to preach the gospel, and I know there's going to be adversaries. Do you see the mindset here? His mindset is not of the, of, of the, of the, of the milquetoast Christian who says, you know, if it's going to get hot, I'd rather be someplace where it's cool. If it's going to be dangerous, I'd rather be someplace where it's safe. If I'm called to preach the gospel, then I need to be where God wants me to be because I know He's going to be there and I know there's going to be problems and I know there's going to be trials, but I still need to be obedient. And Paul says, I'm going to tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost because an open door has, has been given to me, a great open door. And you know what? There are many adversaries. Well, will you take a moment to consider what he's saying also? Those adversaries need Jesus Christ. How many of you were adversaries to the gospel of Christ and Jesus has you now? How many of you cursed God, cursed Christ, cursed the, the servant of God? But here you are today, giving praise and glory to Jesus. Adversaries. So here was Paul's manner of, of dealing with divisiveness, or divisiveness, and division. His, this is how he did it. He considered it an open door to preach the gospel until the Lord says it's time to go. Until the Lord says it's time to go. Folks, I'm not talking about what church I'm supposed to be at. I'm talking about serving the Lord until it's time to go. And so as time went on, the storm began to brew. As everywhere all over town, people began to take sides. The apostles continued to labor. Preaching and teaching. Determined not to evacuate their post of danger until they were compelled to do so. Even with mounting tensions, when all it would take would be a spark to set off the powder keg of opposition, they would stay until God says, go. They would stay. little spark. That's all it takes to set a riot going. You ever considered that in the day and time in which we live, what's taking place today around the world? A person draws a, a cartoon of, of Muhammad and, uh, and, and millions of, of Muslims arise calling for the cartoonist's death. A man in Holland makes a movie, he gets killed. Spark. A lot of sparks. And look at what the results are. 
I want to give you an alternative view that was in the heart of the Apostle Paul when he writes in Romans chapter 8 verses 35 to 39. There's a real upset kid back there in that room. We'll pray for God to calm his heart. Paul said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? The love of Christ. Have you ever heard the statement, the love of Muhammad? I've never heard that. But I've heard the the statement, the love of Christ. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution... Or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? By the way, hasn't Paul gone through all of that? As it is written, he says, and quoting uh, the Old Testament, For your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Can you say that? Loved us? (laughs) Loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death nor life. That pretty much covers it all. You're either dead or alive, folks. I'm persuaded that either death, neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God was Paul's motivation to stay until God said go. The love of Christ was Paul's motivation to stay and to strengthen and to build up and to equip the saints until God said it was time to go. To stay in the, in the heat of the fire until it was time to go. That's our motivation. The violent attempt mentioned in verse 5 was, was more of a hostile intent in that the Jews and Gentiles led by the rulers of the synagogue proposed to treat the apostles outrageously. In other words, to, to treat them shamefully and to stone them. But it was intent. It hadn't happened yet, but it, they were getting ready to persecute them. That's really what it says there in the Greek. But Luke used the same language in describing their treatment as the Lord Jesus used in describing his own treatment at the hands of men. When speaking of himself, he says in Luke 18, verse 32, For he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. Mocked and insulted is the same idea, the same thought of being treated shamefully. And the idea was to treat the apostles shamefully. But when they became aware of the plot, now notice, when they became aware of the plot, now they fled, but they did not flee in fear, as some might think. They did not flee in fear, but because there were other places that needed their ministry. How do we know this? (laughs) Well, first of all, it's important to note that Paul and Barnabas didn't rush headlong into martyrdom, okay? They did everything they could to preserve their lives. And so we see where they're headed 
And I want you to notice what it says. Verse 6, they became aware of it. They fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding regions. Did they flee to hide? Notice, no, they were preaching the gospel there. They went where ministry was needed. They went because they moved now with God. Not out of fear. Paul may have been knocked down somewhat, but he was never knocked out. I love that about Paul. Paul used, uh, you know, the example, I think I mentioned this last time, you know, contending for the faith. He used that term, you know, using the same kind of term as as a boxing uh, person would understand. So, you know, he was probably, you know, knocked down somewhat, but he was never knocked out. And so they could throw him out of Antioch and chase him out of Iconium, but they couldn't stop him from preaching the gospel. Besides Paul's motto, we should always remember in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 16, Paul says, For I preach the gospel, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In other words, I need to be judged if I don't preach the gospel. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That is the motto of Paul. That should be the motto of every believer in Jesus Christ. So now we see what has taken place in Iconium. The gospel was preached. A division arose. Persecution came out of that. Could have been worse. But I tell you what, it took a long time. This was not in in a matter of hours. This was now a matter of days and weeks. Possibly even a couple of months. That all this took place. But when it was time to go, they went to preach the gospel. Now, Paul dealt with the dangers of divisiveness and dissension by three things that I'm just going to leave with you. We've already covered them. I'll just leave, leave them with you as thoughts. The first one is that he dealt with dangers and divisiveness and dissension by, number one, refusing to be intimidated by opposition to the gospel. Paul refused to be intimidated by the opposition of the, uh, to the gospel. Secondly, Paul dealt with the dangers of divisiveness and dissension by being fearless, but not foolish. We, we could all use a little bit of that understanding. We need to be fearless, but not foolish. When it was time to go, they left. Lastly, Paul dealt with the dangers of divisiveness and dissension by never changing the message of the gospel due to persecution. Never changing the message. You see, the message stayed the same. The gospel of Jesus Christ stayed the same. Which burdens me today about the way some people are treating the gospel and treating the word of God in churches. By wanting to put aside the word of God for other things. To say, you know, we, 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 we need to get outside of that box. You know, we need to, you know, spread our wings a little bit in the sense of saying, well, we need to be entertained. We want to bring people in, but we don't want to scare them, you know. All that hell talk, you know, it scares people. Folks, Jesus talked about hell more than he did about heaven because he didn't want anybody to go there. And we shouldn't want anybody to go there either. So Why? Why do we fear then giving the straight gospel of Jesus Christ, giving the word of God and teaching it purely and simply because people need that? 
We needed it. We're here today as, as witnesses of that very thought that we needed the gospel. Now as we look back, it wasn't that we needed money. It wasn't that we needed fame. It wasn't that we needed fortune. It wasn't that we needed all kinds of other things. What we needed was salvation. Because we came to realize we are eternal beings. Though the flesh itself will perish, what remains will either remain in God or separated from God. And I don't want any of you to be separated from God. And so, we need to honor God's Word and realize that it's for our good to know it and to stand upon it. And it brings to mind, as we come to the table of communion, the very heart of the Apostle Paul, again, who said in Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news, the glad tidings of Jesus Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written in the prophecy of Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by his faith. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And as we take the bread and cup, and I'm going to explain, we're going to do it a little differently today, but as we take the bread and cup today, let's realize that, first of all, that great sense of, of unity in Christ that Paul and Barnabas had, knowing what, they were, what, what was awaiting them. And then consider the price that was paid for us to be able to sit here today and appreciate the fullness of God's Word. But as you take that little piece of bread and the cup, which are symbols of the body and blood of Jesus Christ, that as you take them, though, that you just remember. It's a point of, of, of remembering what Jesus Christ did for us. But then as we partake of those elements, we, we, we look to what is yet to come. So it is not just what has happened in the past by what Christ did, but what Christ is doing for us now and what we await in His return, in His coming. I pray that you take this cup and this bread because we're all sinners. We're we're sinners, and, and this was given for us to remember. And maybe you haven't come to Christ yet. Or if you have, you've walked away. Take the cup. It's for you to remember what Jesus did. And if you've come to confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that He's risen from the dead, then you can rejoice in these elements today. Shall we pray?